Father, though we don't know the faces or the names of those that we're praying for, Lord God, you do. And we recognize what an incredible privilege it is for us to be in this country with the freedoms that we have, to be able to gather in this way. And we lift up to you our brothers and sisters who do not have such freedom. And we pray because you command us to pray. You command us to intercede on behalf of people just like us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give them strength and courage and a boldness about their testimony that in the face of their enemies, that they will remain steadfast in their faith and that it will bewilder their enemies, that it will uh, intrigue them in such a way that some will ask and those that ask would come to faith in Christ. So we pray your blessing of protection as, they, as their witness would continue. And we thank you for the real privilege to be able to do that. God, I pray for your blessing over this time of teaching that I have nothing to say, but you have everything to say. And I pray that you would speak through me in a way that impacts all of our lives, in a way that glorifies and honors you and makes us more like the church that you've intended from the very beginning and where our, our history, our origin comes from. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in week two of our study in the book of Romans. And to do that, I want to share a question with you. It's an interesting question. When I was in college, I was a freshman in college at Texas A&M University, the great Texas A&M University, who is now three and four, or three and five, three and five. Is that th- it's, yeah, three and five. It's three and five. It, it's painful. I, I love football and so anyways. I, I do that. It's therapy for me. If I get that out, then I'm not in denial as much. So I'm healthier for you. But anyways, uh, I was walking into the chow hall, if I can say it that way, and there were some people off to the corner, and they were asking questions, um, spiritual in nature. I, at that point, had zero spiritual interest, but uh, I was drawn over there for some reason. I cannot really, I, mean, I think they were just so strategically placed that I wasn't going to get any eat until I kind of got past them. And on it, they had a question, and the question was asked, how strong did I believe that I was going to go to heaven when I died? And the options were zero. 25, 50, 75, and 100%. And uh, I kind of, um, in trying to be polite uh, and trying to not be arrogant or prideful and, and trying to be virtuous to some degree, I chose 75%. And I thought that was a safe answer. I thought that kind of indicated the fact that I realized I wasn't acing the exam by any stretch, but I didn't think I was failing. And so I, I turned that in, and we had a little uh, interaction, a little conversation there. And through that interaction, and then ones that would follow, I came to realize that when I answered the question 75%, it was an extremely arrogant answer. What I thought was virtuous, what I thought was humble, indeed turned out to be very, very egotistical. And I'm curious, if you were asked the same question, how would you have answered? I suspect some of you would have thought, yeah, 75 seems like a pretty good answer. Yeah, I think that, you know, shows a level of humility and at the same time, you know, kind of like you feel like you're in, but maybe you've just got seats way in the back or something like that. But what if I told you that through that interaction, through that conversation, and, and, a, and a few that would follow, that my answer changed completely and it changed to 100%. And I will say to you right now that I believe 100%. Notice I'm making a faith statement, not a fact one. I'm making a faith statement. I believe with 100% of my belief that I, when I die, will be in the presence of God. Now, when you hear that, 
I, I imagine maybe to some of you that might rub you the wrong way. You might kind of think, hey, that sounds pretty arrogant to me. That, that, that really, 75% sounded good, 100% sounds pretty arrogant, pretty prideful. And my friends, today's message is for you. <laughs> you see, last week was chapter one. And, and remember, this is a letter that Paul's writing to, to a church in Rome. And in Rome, there are the Gentiles and the Jews in this church. And, and the Gentiles were anyone who wasn't a Jew. And the Jews had this long history of being God's people. I mean, they had, they had the covenants, they had the promises, they had being chosen, uh, they had circumcision, uh, they had the law, they had all of that. And their history goes way back. And they were God's people from the very beginning. And now you have them coming together in this church with Gentiles, newbies, heathens, who realize that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life to life. I liken it to imagine if, and we sadly can probably understand when I use this analogy, this was a church full of Republicans and Democrats. You know, and, and, and it is, it's, it's, it's funny in a way, but it's also sad in a way. But we, we can just picture how do those two get along? And the book of Romans is, and you'll see that Paul is working on that because this is a church that needs to come together. And in chapter one, you remember Last week I shared with you, as, as Paul shared with the with church in Rome, the good news and the bad news. And the good news is really good. It's really good. The bad news is pretty bad. And that word was primarily a word to the Gentile side of the, of the congregation. To those who came from a, a very decadent uh, life. And, and who maybe still were, were, were drawn back to it at times or, or knew people that were, uh, were in it thick and thin in it. Where there was a life that, that God didn't exist. They didn't care if he existed. They were living life large. And they were boss of their lives. And you can imagine the Jews who were sitting there when Paul's letter was being read. Secretly inside of them was this, yeah, Paul, get them. Go get them. We're the people of God. We've, we've suffered. We've sacrificed. We've been exiled. We've been persecuted. We've been imprisoned. We've been invaded. We've been occupied. We've got a long history of that. We're the people of God. And these newbies, these heathens, these Gentiles are coming in like we're all on even, even ground. Get them, Paul. Can you relate to that? Because if you felt like 75% was a good answer, if you felt that when I said, now I'm 100%, you thought was an, kind of an arrogant answer, you're a Jew, if I can say it that way. Your, your, your heart, parts of it or all of it, kind of have the same bent. And we get to chapter 2. So the Jews were like, go get them, Paul. Go get them. Yeah, tell them. Tell them. Oh, my friends, they had no idea what chapter 2 was in store for them. And that's where we are this morning is we are going to talk about how religion does not work. And the Jews were very religious. And when I use that expression, I'm using it not in a flattering kind of way. I'm using it in a pejorative way. It doesn't always have to be used that way, but that's the way I'm going to use it. And I think it lines up when, when the scriptures talk about... Um, people who are of the flesh 
um, uh, people who, are, uh, who, who rely on their works. We're talking about religious people. And what religious, and, and let me just say this, all of us are religious. Everybody in here is religious, whether you believe in God or not. All those of you tuned in, you're religious, whether you believe in God or not. You see, to be religious is essentially to have a goal, something you think that is ultimate in your life that will bring you uh, happiness and peace and joy and satisfaction and meaning, whatever that is, and then you perform in such a way as to get it. It's on you, but you've got it in you to do whatever you have to do to get whatever you know is ultimately going to bring you the peace and the joy and the happiness. And my friends, that in a sense makes you religious. Now, the religious that I'm going to talk about today, the religious that the Jews were, is I mean when they wanted and knew that God was the God that they needed, but they needed to get there themselves, morally, spiritually, perform and follow the commands and do them as better than anybody else. And God, now, now you owe me. That, that's kind of what they were doing. And you can imagine it's very problematic to have that type of attitude, that type of heart condition. And we're going to see this as we go along. And Paul writes chapter 2 just, just for them, just for us, just for you. So let's get our Bibles open to our table of contents. You've got an Old Testament, you've got a New Testament. Romans is the sixth book down in your New Testament table of contents. So what are a page that corresponds to in your Bible? Let's turn to chapter 2. You might already be there or get your Bible app open to chapter 2. And I'm going to talk about how religion doesn't work. And we're going to start with the first five verses of chapter 2, if you'll follow along with me. It says, therefore, any of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. And again, he's talking to the, to the Jews who were judging the Gentiles. Uh, they didn't quite live up to what the Jews felt they lived up to. So because of that, they had the moral superiority to call out and point out where they were wrong. And Paul is saying, by virtue of you doing that, by virtue of you calling out as a, as a presumed judge, though you do the same things, in essence, you're judging yourself. Because what you say they are doing wrong, you are doing it wrong as well. Verse 2, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. In other words, God knows all. You don't. You have no business being a judge. Verse 3, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. So let me just say a qualifier here. This might scare you off for the next several weeks. I hope it doesn't. Romans, the first seven chapters of Romans... If I can say it this way, just isn't really sexy. And what I mean by that is, it's a lot of theology. It's a lot of doctrine. And it's hard stuff. And, and most of us are practical and pragmatic. And we want to say, hey, tell me something that helps make something work in my life. And, and so we're, we're, we're prone to being shallow and what Paul does in the book of Romans, which is why I wanted to go through it this year, is he builds 
the doctrine that's necessary, our understanding of who God is, our understanding of who we are, he builds that up in such a way that we can understand life and the life that God has for us. And if we don't have that undergirded foundation of understanding and doctrine, dare I say that word, that might just put you to sleep, then we'll, we'll walk around living in a, a shallow life. And so what we have here in chapter 2, Paul is coming hard and fast to the judges, the presumed judges that, that the religious Jews were with judgment. And notice it's very easy. I think one of the reasons that I'll state that as to why religion doesn't work is because when you become religious, you suddenly become judgmental. And you judge people in the wrong ways. And that just isn't a good look. That isn't a good life. And that's what Paul is saying here. Is he saying, knock it off. What I want you to notice is he, is he kind of balances the, the, the caution that he's trying to give them and, and the way in which they're going around judging people. He, he balances one. He says, God's judgment. He says, do you think you're going to get away from God's judgment when you do that? You know, it's a rhetorical question. Of course you're not. But then he also balances it in verse 4. He says, God's kindness, his patience, in other words, the time that you're continuing to do this isn't because God's saying it's okay because he's a God of grace, he's a God of mercy. You're the people of God, the covenant people of God. Go ahead, it's all right. He's not doing that. The reason he's being patient is that you would come to your senses and you would turn. There's time to do that. And so Paul starts with the judging that was going on. Now, again, I think I would consider the first thing I'd like to share with you as to why religion doesn't work is because it turns us into judgmental people. And there's a wrong way in which we judge people, which presumes also there's a right way. And that might surprise you. I think this is something that's so important. Those of you in here who are not followers of Christ, for me, before I became a follower of Christ, when you looked at the list of things as why you didn't want to become a Christian, one of them was, they are judgmental people. And you understood that to mean that any time they said anything about something that was wrong or bad about someone or some group, who are you to judge? And you got angry. I got angry. Like, stay in your lane, bro. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, you're going to cling to what I'm about to read to you here in Matthew chapter 7. You're going to cling to this because this is the, you know, the, the faint remnant of what you've heard that fits your understanding really well as to why people shouldn't judge. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so you won't be judged. See, there it is. He says, don't judge. And he says, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus, not only does he say, don't judge. He says, but if you do, that's the judgment that's going to be used against you. So better yet, don't judge. And so you walk away thinking any Christian that judges, any spiritual person that says anything um, that, that condemns or anything that challenges or, or anything that's pointed out is wrong, don't do that. Jesus said, don't do that. But then Jesus said this, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to the brother, to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus isn't condemning judging. He's condemning a certain kind of judging. He's condemning judging. 
the wrong way of judging. And he likens it to a log in your eye. There's a speck in somebody else's eye. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying that your attempt to judge in the wrong way is like a log. It's, 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 in a sense, it's worse than whatever you're trying to correct in somebody else. And the way that we judge wrongly, and, and, and Paul says it right here. He says, you're judging even though you do it, you hypocrite, Jesus, you hypocrite. So how do we judge wrongly? Well, we judge wrongly when we do it hypocritically with an attitude of superiority. I mean, come on, right? You, you, you've been there. When someone you see is doing something wrong, there's something that kind of draws up in you, like, man, what are they doing, right? And I better say something to them, right? I mean, we, we've, we've been there, okay? And typically, we say something with an air of superiority about it. The other thing we do that kind of exposes wrong judging is we are happy, to write them off. You made your bed, now lay in it. I mean, come on, sometimes, does that not feel really good to say? When you're really frustrated with somebody, you're getting what you deserve. And there's, there's a sense that it feels good inside. And you might even say, it's justice. It's right to feel that way. Ah, you're walking a razor's edge there. Because when we judge in the wrong way, we judge hypocritically, we judge with an attitude of superiority, and we judge them and honestly feel a little, little twinge of, of good, of satisfaction, when they get what we think they deserve. And Jesus calls it out and he says, that is a log that needs to be dealt with. And Paul says, if you judge that way, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment for that? He says, God's storing up wrath for you, you religious hypocrite. Well, like I said, if there's a wrong way to do it, there's a right way to do it, right? And, and that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, first, take the log out of your eye, then go and address the speck. That's what he's saying. So we're called to judge in the right way. And, and, and the right way is when we judge with humility. How would we want someone to come say something hard to us? How would, we, how would we do that? Well, then let's go and do it that way. Let's recognize that we go as a broken person too, that we're all level before the cross. We don't stand with any superiority. We're all broken. We're, we all need a Savior. And, and, and we found that in Jesus. And now we go humbly and, and we, we, we approach them and we say something hard to them. Secondly, out of care and concern for them. You and I, we are never ever ready to go say a hard word when we go because we want a little bit of revenge. When we're gonna feel better to get this off my chest so they know how I feel about it. You're not ready, I am not ready to say anything. We will be judging in, in the wrong way when we do that. Our hearts need to be something along the lines of if they keep doing that, it's going to hurt them. And I have care and concern for them. And when you can go like that, with that heart attitude, what you say and how you say it, your posture will come across that you really do care for them and not for you getting something off your chest. And Paul is warning them. But judging comes so easy. I mean, it does, right? You've looked around at people and thought the way they spend their money foolish. I would never do that. 
I think we've all been there when we're out in public and some kid is throwing a tantrum, moms and dads, and you're looking at that going, that would never happen to me. What kind of parents are those? Social media posts. Hey, honey, come here. Look at this. Can you believe that? We would never do something like that. And there's a sense of, you can feel that wrong kind of judgmental spirit kind of well up. And, and it happens because, and we judge people, one, because we're incredibly insecure. And we feel better when we make others look worse than we are. Rather than improve ourselves independent of anybody else, it's really easy to kind of find in others the problems that they have. And now we feel better. And that just kind of fits our insecurities. And the spiritual pride that we have, if we, if, as a religious person, if we think that God has looked our way and we've, we've, we've gotten God's favor because of something we've done spiritually, it's like, yeah, it's easy to look down at people. Very easy. And thirdly, maybe the most bizarre, the most warped, the most whacked, is that we amazingly can see in others the problems that are in ourselves. I mean, we, we, we're like fine-tuned to that. And we think if we say something about it to them, that we're actually doing something satisfactory. We're, we're satisfying that we know it's wrong in us, but let me correct it in them. And somehow you walk away from that interaction going, I feel better about myself. They have counseling for that. that that's, that's a problem. And yet it's so easy. And Paul is warning them. Because religion doesn't work. You will come out judgmental. Second, reason that religion doesn't work. Verse 6, he says, he, God, will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness. Affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew also and to the Greek. There is no favoritism with God. All those who sinned without the law will also perish with the, without the law. And all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What he's saying, he's separating again, Jew and Gentile. He's saying the Jews who didn't possess the law, they didn't have the law because the, Moses had the tablets and the, and the people of God, they had the tablets. The, the commands that God wrote on the tablets that the, the, the people of God were to follow. The Gentiles didn't have that. He says, so they didn't have the law but they still sinned and still paid for it. Death is the result of sin. And then he says, but to the Jews who had the law, they sinned under the law and they were judged for that. So he's, he's keeping them separate, recognizing that they all still come to the same place in terms of judgment. Verse 13, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. He's saying to the, to the religious people, you hear it, you have it, you possess it, but if you don't do it, it doesn't matter for anything. Verse 14. So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirms this. So what he's saying is, is he's saying some people, the Jews, they have the law. They've been given the law, the, the commandments, the tablets, they have it. He says, to those who weren't given the law, they still have the law because it's indelibly written on their hearts. Because they've been created in the image of God. And their own law, their own moral code, whatever it might be. And every one of us in here 
Christian or not, you have a moral code. I said before, everyone in here is religious, and you have a code about your religion that gets you the ultimate prize that you're after. And it just so happens that the Gentiles, like some of you, the good things they did were actually commanded by God to be done. They didn't know that. They just naturally did it because it was instinctively, inherently, as being image bearers of God written on their hearts. But sometimes they didn't. And so whether you have a Bible or not, it doesn't matter. God's commands, God's um, way of doing things is either in your possession or it is indelibly, intuitively in your heart. And we are accountable for it. In a moment, we'll see what the level of accountability that exactly is. And he says on Verse, let me go back to verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirms this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse them or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. He's referring to the day of judgment when Christ will be the one who will judge. And he's saying from the moment the Gentiles who have uh, God's indelibly as an image bearer of God, they have the law written on their hearts, sometimes they fault, sometimes they don't. When they follow it in their conscience, they feel like they've acquitted themselves. I feel good about what I've done. And when they don't, they feel like they accuse themselves. Why did I do that? I broke my, my own moral code. He said, that's going to happen all the way even up to the day of judgment. When they are judged for the law because they have it intrinsically in their hearts. Now let's go back to verse 6. And what Paul is saying is he saying that religion really, religion isn't good because we're going to be paid or repaid, it says, each one according to his works. In other words, God's judgment will be on our works, our good deeds, all that we've done. Now, you might think, wait a minute, <clears throat> hold on, time out, beep. <clears throat> this seems like a contradiction because in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this is what Paul said. Well, let me just read 17. He says, for in it, he's referring to the gospel, um, God's commands. He says, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, Paul, which one is it? Earth to Paul. Is it faith that really carries the day uh, on judgment day? Or is it our works? Which one is it? It's both. It's both. And it depends on how you enter into that day of judgment. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I understand it to be public. But on that day of judgment, Christ's followers, you see, our bad deeds have already been judged on the cross in Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Christ and his obedience, then we're forgiven from all of our sins, all of our bad deeds, past, present, and future. We are forgiven and so the judging of our deeds on the day of judgment, the good deeds, it is there to prove what has previously already happened in that we have been born again. We have put our faith and trust in Jesus' work. And as a result, coming out of that are these good deeds. Because we don't have to get now. And that's what religion, religion is all about. What can I get rather than what have I already received? And how can I live my life in light of what I've already received versus what I need to get? And Christians on the day of judgment have already received 
by faith in Christ, new life and the forgiveness. So our deeds will be judged to show and to prove that we are indeed followers of Jesus. And so our faith in Christ at the day of judgment carries the day because we get credit for Jesus' work. Conversely, as Paul refers to the other side, those who are self-seeking, again, the religious, they're out and they live, try to live a, a morally upright life to get good. Their works will be revealed and they will come woefully short because the standard is perfection. And they will come woefully short and they will receive the full weight and the full fury of God's wrath. And so what we need to recognize is that religion doesn't work because you do not want your deeds to carry the day on the day of judgment. You don't want that. You want Jesus' deeds, which already have, and, and, and the reason we know it already has because he was raised from the dead. That was God's way of saying, yep, Jesus' perfect life was good enough to satisfy my holiness. That's what you want. That's what we need. So understand that what's gonna happen in the day of judgment is that we're gonna be judged for our deeds and we're gonna be judged for what kind of deeds are they? Are, are they the good works that are the result of having our faith in Christ and, and coming out of what we already have. So we, we do, the good things we do is to honor God. It's to show him how thankful we are for what we already have. We're not trying to get anything. We already have everything we need in Christ. And we're all gonna be held accountable for that. I, I, I hope that you kind of feel a little bit of the weight of that, okay? Now, the other side of it is that moral code that we all carry around, that you intuitively, instinctively have in you, I'm telling you, if you throw those good deeds up on the table and say, all right, let's settle up, that's not gonna go well. That's not gonna turn out well at all because, again, inside you have a sense of it, but you don't have enough of them. Only Jesus has enough of them. And when I say you have a sense of them, I, I, I appreciate what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, uh, there's many ways in which to kind of see that we really do have intuitively the, the, the law written on our hearts. He said, and, and we've all been there, you've either said this out loud or you've said it inside. When someone's done you wrong, you say to them, how would you like me to treat you that way? Now again, you've either said it out loud or inside when they've done something wrong, you thought to yourself, I wonder how they'd like it if I treated them like that. And that question reveals not merely your preference that whatever they did, you didn't like, but it reveals some universal, absolute truth that they should know that what they did was wrong. And so when you have that feeling to ask that question, how would you like if I did that to you? Or if you didn't ask it aloud, you just thought it because you're bumping into the law that's written on your heart that realizes it's not just a matter of preference because they may not know what you like or dislike, but you, in asking that question, assume that they know that there's some absolute right and wrong out there and they violated one of them. Then they should know that. And so we carry that around with us. And the problem is the only way we're going to find peace with God, the only way we're going to find and be in heaven with God, the only way you can have 100% belief in that you will be in heaven when you die is that your obedience has to be perfect. And the only way it could be perfect is when you, when you hitch your wagon to Jesus' perfect obedience. That's the only way. It's either 100% you perfect or it is 
putting your faith in Jesus' 100% perfection and that he obeyed every command. And that's exactly, that's exactly what he did. But it's more than just obedience. Let's go back to verse 16. Notice what he says on the day of judgment. He says, on the day when God judges what people have kept secret. Think motivation. Think motive for the things that you do. And then skip over to verse 25. Paul picks up on this religious activity that was very important to Jews. It's called circumcision. And, and the Jews, as a sign of the covenant that they had as God's people, they would circumcise on the eighth day the boys. And that was an external rite of passage, if you will, that kind of identified them as the people of God in covenant with God. And they put a lot of stock in that outwardly speaking. And Paul points that out. Again, he's talking to religious Jews. And he says, verse 25, For circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It doesn't matter externally what you're doing. If it's not aligning, if there's no integrity inside, then it's as if you haven't been circumcised. It's as if you haven't really been set apart as a part of God's people. Verse 28, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will his uncircumcision not be counted as circumcision? To the person, to the Gentile, who is obeying God's commands, though they're not circumcised, it's as if they are. Because that's what identifies you as the people of God. A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who fulfills the law will judge you. He's now telling, hey, hey, you Jews, you people of God, the Gentiles are going to judge you in the way that they're living. He says, we'll judge you who are lawbreaker, who are lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. In other words, all you've got externally really isn't matching up. It ain't going to help you because inside there's a disconnect. Verse 28, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter, that man's praise is not from men, but from God. So, so Paul is talking about something inside, internally, that really matters. And, and it's going to be judged. It's not just our deeds. It's the motivation for our deeds. It's the motive. I mean, plenty of us in this room, you've done the right thing. But inside, if they opened you up and looked at you, I mean, you'd be going, I hate what I'm doing. I hate this person. I'm going to be nice to him. Uh, you know, th there's just going to be, I, I know, uh, you know God's kind of messed me around here, and I'm looking all smiling. It's all about faith. But inside, I'm like, God, you know, I mean, th that's, that's there, right? And, and that's what's going to be measured. That's what's going to be evaluated. And he's saying to those who have been circumcised in the heart, in other words, to the Spirit of God that works in the heart of a follower, you start to change your desires and your preferences, your proclivities, uh, the things of God become something you want. You, you desire to follow God's commands. It's not something you do under compulsion uh, or out of obligation. There's a big difference there. And notice, this is amazing. The last sentence of verse 29. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. When you and I which we're going to be judged for our deeds, whether we, and, and it's, did we do them with 100% perfection? And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, boom, you get credit for that. But not only that, it's our motives. Our motives have to be 100% pure. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, boom, you get credit for that. 
And when that's happening, when that's working, when you're, when you're living that out, look what you get. You don't get the praise of men, but you get praise from God. You don't hear much about that. Which is why earlier when he said in verse 7, he talks about um, those, you know, the, the self-seeking ones were contrasted with the ones who were God-seeking. And he makes reference in verse 7, he says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus, you seek the glory of God. Uh, you, you seek the honor of God. But as you live your life, God will praise you. And, and, and we'll bring glory to you and bring honor to you and immortality to you. And it's not something you're like, look at me. It's what you're striving after because you want to be with God in eternity. You want to live a life in such a way that God would honor that. It's not selfish. It's selfless. And it's a work of the Spirit of God in your hearts. Circumcised in the heart. And you get the praise of God. Now, so let me ask you, let's go back to this for a minute to motives. Is it okay, some of you would say, my, my, my spiritual walk, my religious life, there's just a lot of obligation. I, I'm doing the things because I know I'm supposed to. The desire, not so much. I, I might even do some things because I feel guilty and I don't want to feel guilty anymore. And, and there might even be a deadness inside. You might think to yourself, I, I just don't know that if, if I was on trial and I could convince the jury that I'm really a follower of Jesus because I could demonstrate the good works in my life that really were done for the glory of God you know, done out of understanding what I already have rather than they more than likely might look like what I'm trying to get. What do you do with that? If, if our motives are gonna be scrutinized in this way, what, what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that maybe there's no life really in, in your life? There's no spiritual life. There's no freedom. There's no um, selflessness. There's no humility. There's no compassion. There's no godly sorrow. What do you do with that? My friends, you go back to the gospel. It's what Paul, remember Paul was driving him in verse four. He says, um, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What we do is we throw ourselves back to the gospel. We go back and, and, we, and we just think about what Jesus has done for us and we just let that settle in. And, and, and that is why judgment and the gospel are connected. Paul makes that connection, right? In, in verse 16, on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel. He's making a connection between judgment and gospel. Why would he do that? Because the gospel has the judgment intrinsically in it. Because what's the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Good news about what? Saved from the wrath of God on the day of destruction, on the day of judgment. And so you will not appreciate the gospel and what has been done for you until you really appreciate the day of judgment and, and what could happen. And so you gotta go back to that and just uh, uh, let, let your spirit and, and let the spirit of God work on your heart in that way. And so for that reason, religion's not gonna get you there. And it doesn't work. It doesn't change your heart and it won't get you to heaven. Okay, last reason, and I'll go rather quickly on this. The last reason is why religion doesn't work Let's read chapters, or excuse me, verses 17 through 24. He says, now if you call yourself a Jew and rest in the law, boast in God, know his will, and approve all, and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law. He's nothing we're seeing. All the privileges you've had to be the light 
Go back to Genesis chapter 12. When you as the people of God were going to bless all nations and, and just go back. You were, you were you're done that in some ways. In some ways you haven't. You were doing all of that. Verse 21. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself. You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Lastly, what he's saying is he's saying, all the religious stuff you did, he's kind of going back to what he said before, all the religious stuff you did, it's great, it's fine. But there was a disconnect between what was inside you and what was outside of you. And, and, and the people, the lost people, they saw that. You see, when you're religious, it's hard to control that. It's hard to manage that. It's hard, you, you're hard to find the strength to really be consistent and persistent. And so what happens is, is people who are outside the church, they see in you when you live religiously, they see that you struggle with the same exact things. They see you struggle with lust. They see you struggle with debt. They see you struggle with greed. They see you struggle with bitterness. And they kind of go, What's different? How are they really different? I mean, the whole story of God's people, they were supposed to, from Genesis 12, to be the the blessing to all the nations. They went in and out of captivity, in and out of exile, in and out of persecution, and their enemies would laugh at their God because they'd say, you really don't serve a very powerful God. And God's name was blasphemed. And today for us, when we live religiously, when we try to morally perform, we think we're in control. We hypocritically push people away from God. And for that reason, religion does not work. Religious people are proud. They're not humble. They're judgmental, not gracious. They're anxious about things when they're not working well rather than trusting in God's plan. They're greedy rather than generous. And they push people away. And for that reason... The third reason, religion does not work. So with those three reasons, may I challenge you this way. First is, I would challenge you to think about where you have acted judgmentally in a self-righteous way towards someone and seek their forgiveness for it. Just go to them and say, you know what? I really kind of, there was a part of me that was kind of happy you got what you deserved. And I am so very sorry for that. Or I spoke harshly. Or I didn't come w- before you realizing that I struggle with that as well too. Secondly is, I would challenge you to put your trust 100% in Jesus' perfect obedience and pure motives, not in your own. If you've never done that, just put your trust in Him and His work on your behalf. And then thirdly, ask these questions of yourself. Is my interaction with God motivated for what I can get or for what I already have been given? Really, honestly, why are you here why do you do, when any of the good works you do, just ask yourself, why am I doing it? Am I doing it thinking I can get something? Or am I really doing it out of realizing all I've been blessed in, in Christ? Secondly is, has my inward life changed <clears throat> spiritually? And if so, how? Because that'll tell you whether you're living a religious life or not. Because religion cannot change your heart, but the Spirit of God can. And you just got to ask yourself, is there evidence of that in my life where truly my, my emotions and my thoughts and my desires and my affections, have they really changed? And then lastly, ask yourself, why do I do the good deeds that I do? What is motivating me? And be honest with yourself with that, okay? Let me say a quick prayer. Father, thank you so much for your patience and your mercy and your grace. 
I pray your blessing as we continue to worship. I pray these words that we've read and as we've reflected on them, God, I pray they would find their way into our hearts, into our minds, and ultimately, Lord God, into our actions, into our words, into our thoughts, and that we would be the people of God, not worried, not fearful, not doubting even 1% of where we will be when we die, not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.